There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash wondery and use code wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Notice Podcast number 442. I will be doing stand-up in a variety of places like Minneapolis, Chicago, Seattle, all in December. Uh, so come on out. Go to nurse.com slash calendar. Uh, the adorable Matt Myra will be opening for me. You can come and pinch his cheek and kiss him on the forehead and, uh, and enjoy and enjoy some Myraness um, with your hardwicketude. I'll never say that sentence again. I would like to thank you guys for watching At Midnight, the program on Comedy Central, because we have been picked up for 40 weeks next year. So if you hated the show, that's incredibly bad news for you. But if you enjoyed the show, we'll be on every night after Colbert in 2014. So uh, thank you. Honestly, it's been a dream job, and, and we're super excited to get back into it. And I will kiss Myra on the forehead every day for you. Uh, if you're unable to make any of the shows. So uh, that's Comedy Central. We're back January 6th. So uh, we'll have some holidays, and we'll do some live shows, and then we'll come back. Um, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by HostGator. It is your one-stop website shop. HostGator makes it simple to get your professional website online quick. Plans start at just how much, Katie? $347. $3.47. $3.47 a month. You said $347, yeah. and people are like, oh, the website's got to be like $347 yeah. a month. No, $3.47. A month. A month! It's a pain in the ass getting a good .com. And then once you get your .com, what do you do with it? How do you get it to the next level? How do you get it hosted in such a way? In the old days of hosting, it was a huge pain in the ass. You had to build all the infrastructure yourself and code the site entirely using HTML or frames. And then in CSS. Um... Now you don't have to do any of that stuff. You just use HostGator's drag-and-drop builder or, or, or WordPress. There's no need to code. HostGator makes it easy. Get your site up and running with just a few clicks. Head over to HostGator.com, buy some hosting, get some .NETs, use the coupon code NERDIST to get an extra 30% off and support this show while launching your digital dream. That's HostGator.com. This episode of the podcast is Sasha Gray, who was awesome. You know, we'd met a couple times at G4, but never really had a conversation at length. And um, and I, I absolutely love talking to her. Her She has a book out. It's called The Juliet Society. It's available wherever books are sold now. Um, that could be digitally. That could be a brick and mortar store. There's still a handful of those out there where you can actually hold things in your hand. Um, uh, but pick up the Juliet Society, and uh, and I and this was a really. Her, you can follow her on uh, Twitter. She's at Sasha Gray, G R E Y, and uh, and really, really, really fascinating, really fascinating chat. So here we go, the Nerds Podcast number four forty two with Sasha Gray. Now entering Nerdist.com. Maybe once, I think, at G4. We did, yeah. Briefly. Yeah. Um, G4 days. Yeah, the G4 days. How did... uh, did, Do we sound okay? Okay, good. Uh, How did you get involved at G4? How did I get involved at G4? Uh, It was when I was still doing porn, and John Ryber was shooting all of these um, shows for the AVN and AEE conventions. Oh, right, right. And... And he was the vice president of G4 at the time, and he came to me to see if I wanted to host an episode. And we hosted um, an episode, and then after that, we went to Australia. Oh, right. And that's right. Thailand. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> you went to Australia and Thailand. Yeah. And the rest of a G4 were like, 
Okay, Chris, you're going to go to a cell phone convention in Aurora, <laughs> Illinois. Like, all right. All right. Yeah. That's all right. That's not bad at all. No, not at all. And I miss those times. It's a lot of fun to be able to travel the world and uh, talk about things I'm familiar with. And G4 was fun. It I was. Liked, I liked that channel. Everyone was nice. I know. Their eyes were so full of hope. <laughs> it's too bad. And then now it's... Well, now they're just rerunning. The channel still exists. But the only thing that they own is this show, Web Soup, that I did for them. So it's just on all the time. Yeah. And people are like, you're doing new Web Soups? I'm like, no, <laughs> those are very old Web Soups from ages ago. But I went to, because um, AEE and CES are at the same time. Right, or back-to-back. They're back-to-back. Yeah. yeah, one sort of leads into the other. And I always thought it was really interesting to stand outside, like the Venetian Hotel, and just go uh, AEE. CES, AEE, and most yeah. of the time you could you could tell yeah, you could exactly. tell who was whom, uh, but every time there'd be some like creepy Asian guy, you're like, oh fuck, I can't tell, <laughs> I can't tell, I can't tell. Could be both. Could be either one. I had a lot of people, a lot of fans that would say, yeah, this is the only way I can legitimately come to the AEE convention <laughs> is to tell my wife that I have to be at CES. And so then she, she can't get mad at me. Do you understand that that is that is uh, that is a much more three dimensional version of what young men did their entire life, which was to hide a Playboy inside a tech magazine, yeah, uh, so that they could read it in public. That's exactly the same. I That's never exactly had to do that. You did not have to do that. Well, the, For generation. I went to uh, I went to AEE once, and it was maybe oh man, maybe like three three or four years ago, and um, I was really expecting this like. It's going to be insane. Yeah. And it was not. It was very sedate. It was almost, uh, I mean, I'm not saying it was like, it wasn't a bummer, but it was a bummer in the sense of like, oh, a lot of it was curtained off and the the section was really small and it didn't really have the energy that I thought it was going to have. It, uh, the first one I went to was in 2007 because I got in the business 2006. First convention I went to was 2007 and that year was pretty fun. Uh, it was a lot of energy. It was crazy. 2008 was the second year I went, and you could even see a decline from those two, that from 2007 to 2008, and so it progressively got smaller and less interesting. But I, I think that's because all of the big companies started to suffer because of oh, free content flash online, porn, flash porn sites. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So the internet really is ruining every industry. It is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but if you can find a way to make your business thrive I guess it helps some people how do the flash porn sites work how are they how are the sites allowed to post clips of copyrighted material they're not okay but they just do it, they just do you just and, can't they just can't squash all of it and it's my understanding that the people that run these sites are actually probably the most wealthy people in the adult movie industry now Oh, wow. Um, because they basically make all of their uh, revenue off of ads. And and now what you see happen is, happening is companies just give their clips away. Right. They give five minutes away because they know it's going to happen anyways. And I, I don't remember which site, but one of the larger tube sites, um, free websites, the guys made a lot of money. And they were like, okay, we made what we want to make. Let's sell it so we don't get in trouble. So they sold it off to somebody else who's still, you know, making a lot of money off of it. Jesus but. Christ. <laughs> That's insane. But the, are, you, are you tired of talking about porn? I mean, it was something you did years ago. And you did it. You've, you've, it's been longer since you stopped that you actually did it, right? Yep. Exactly right. <laughs> I, uh, I quit four years ago. And I was in it for three years so yes and no i I, am sick of people thinking that i'm like a doctor or (laughs) or a therapist like i have all the answers to everything i don't i'm i'm a human being like everybody else and i don't have all the answers i i only know uh and can give my opinion or advice on my own experience um but for instance i've been traveling for the past three months doing interviews all over the world and there's been a few times where people are like, so, I call it the tire banks. They tried to tire banks. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And I don't know if you're familiar with the show I did when I was 18. Oh, I heard that, um, I, I, I never saw it, but I know that there was something controversial where you did it and they chopped it up and mm. they sort of made it. It was my first experience on television. 
So I knew I was going to be set up to fail, and I had no problem with that. Sure. Because to me, it was publicity. But I didn't think about editing. Uh, but whatever, I'm still happy I did it. I would do it again if I had to. So she basically just, um, what, did the, what did she cut out? My answers. <laughs> oh, oh the, you mean the part where you're supposed to go on and give answers? She, exactly. took, she took all that out. Yeah, like I had nothing to say, but it's okay. It's still, I, I'm really glad I did it. But yeah, there's there's just been a few things recently where, um, you know, right, I guess rightly so, people want to make me this poster child of porn um, because I was so successful in a short amount of time. And part of me is okay with that because I. I always wanted to represent the positive uh, perspective of the industry um, because that story isn't told enough. (laughs) And I know a lot of women who have very healthy lives who have been in the business for a a long time, longer than I ever was. And so that story doesn't get told often enough. So if I get the chance to tell a positive story, that's a good thing. But at the same time, I'm not... You know, to sit here and harp on why I decided to get into porn, that, yes, I'm very tired of that. <laughs> like, Google it. Well, what is the, what is the positive? What is the positive side? Because we've had um, Dana D'Armand's been on before, and oh, she's, cool. a, she's a, a good friend of mine, and I, I adore her. And uh, April O'Neil. I don't actually, I don't think April's ever actually, she's, she's popped up on the podcast, like she's come to some live podcasts and popped up for a second. We, we should get her on, too. She's, she's, real, she's really great. I just think there's women that uh, enjoy what they do. <laughs> They're not pressured or they don't suffer from any of the cliches or stereotypes. Right. And and actually, conversely, there are women I've met who, uh, let's say they were abused. Um, they do suffer from the stereotypes. They do come from a, a, a damaged background. They've used porn as a way to cathartically work through their problems. And I think that's also a positive story because nobody wants to give credit to stories like that. So I, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of fascinating, interesting women and men in the business who, who you know, they're good at what they do and, and they're happy doing it. And that's, that story isn't told enough. I did the, I did the, um, this show, uh, The Talk, this morning because my friend Aisha is one of the hosts on it. It's the one, this one with like Sharon Osbourne. It's basically this pantheon of ladies who um, uh, they don't sit on a couch. They sit at a table. So it's not the view. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, and backstage I was waiting before I went on. They, they actually Aisha brought up a really they actually had a really good story that I was like, wow, I never really thought about that. But the, this thing came out like, oh, Spencer Pratt. Um, uh, was uh, stripped when he was 18 years old and they mentioned all these actors like Brad Pitt you know they were male strippers and of course uh, the ladies in the audience it was all ladies in the audience were like woo oh damn and then <laughs> and then Aisha was like um, if we were saying this was Jennifer Aniston everyone would be like oh no yeah. you know that it was stigmatized in, 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 that it was stigmatized a stigma that it was stigmatized in a way that was uh, very negative if you're a woman and you found out that someone found out you had a stripping past but as a dude everyone's like alright so cool yeah so yeah. What, what do you think the basis of the stigma is and why why is it so unfairly uh, weighted it's just a double standard that's been going on for generations I don't I guess I I have thought about this a lot, and there's part of me that says, I don't know why. It's just a double standard that continues to exist. Uh, Men are allowed to be intellectual and sexy and sexual, and women aren't. Um, We want our our sexual women to just look good and fuck good, but we don't want them to have a good conversation. (laughs) And I really think if, if you sort of analyze fantasy, entertainment. Porn is the last medium of entertainment that is looked at as reality. Mm-hmm. We understand action films are, are entertainment. We understand video games are entertainment. Uh, we understand music is entertainment. But porn is exclusive in this way. And I think that people want to believe women are have nothing... Porn, when we're talking about porn stars, people want to believe that porn stars have nothing to say. That, oh, they're just this fantasy object that is ready to bend over at any moment's notice and to take it in the butt, and she's not going to talk back either. Wow, that's fucking cool. And I think people really, they really want that fantasy. And 
that that also includes the fantasy of this rock and roll lifestyle that these hot young girls are doing drugs with uh, the coolest rock stars and on right. private jets and on yachts. You know, there's only one person in the porn industry who owns a private jet, and that's Larry Flint. And that's <laughs> well. a man. <laughs> so, I mean, I really think a lot of that um, comes down to 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 wanting the audience wanting to believe that women are this way and it's also i mean it's it's easier to sell a negative story than it is to sell a positive one and i just like put on instagram a few days ago a photo from uh it's like in cvs and there was a, a gossip magazine and it said i will destroy you in in bold yellow letters and i just started laughing this is ridiculous. When are we ever as a culture going to get over this? And I, I really scratch my head and I wonder, I, I just think it's because it's, it's easier and it's, it's people want something to judge. And I kind of took this idea or philosophy uh, from somebody that I hugely admire, uh, Peter Sleazy Christofferson. He was a, a member of Throbbing, Gris- Throbbing Gristle and later on Coil. He uh, was part of the design firm that also designed the cover of Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, wow. Um, And he was a a gay man who uh, explored very, quote-unquote, dark themes in his music. Um, And he was judged quite often. Um, And there's an interview uh, Coyle gave uh, several years ago before both him and John Balance passed where... Sleazy said something along the lines of <clears throat> society needs people to villainize. You know, we, we need the M&Ms, we need the Marilyn Mansons to villainize because they have the balls to do the things that we n- would never have the balls to do ourselves. Right, like when Marilyn Manson came on Talking Dead and he couldn't make a coherent thought. Damn well, you, Marilyn Manson! Well, Damn you! I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. This interview is I'm so about... Sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> this interview is about 15 years old, okay, so... Okay, good. Okay, good. <laughs> the, the Marilyn Manson, everyone... He couldn't have seen that coming. Yeah, yeah. He couldn't no. have seen that coming. No, exactly. Okay, oh, thank God. Oh. The, Marilyn, the, the Marilyn Manson, we all used to love and hate. That one. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I was just, just fucking around. But but I do, I do understand that we do need that. But I also do think that... Um, I do think that uh, in saying... You know the things that uh, the internet's done, and believe me, I'm, I've been I, I've been an interneter since 1993, 94, and uh, and I, I understand how it works, and I think the benefits outweigh the negative sides. But it certainly has, uh, as much as it's created positive communities, it's also created negative communities. And I really do, and I've said many times on this podcast, um, I'm sure much of the chagrin of our listeners who've heard it over and over, that we as a culture are addicted to outrage, that we have an outrage addiction. Where it's very much like witch hunty, and mm-hmm. you know, people will create uh, judgments um, based on a molecule of information, right. and then go, "Aha! I'm fucked that thing. Why? I'm angry." You know, and it, and and part of me thinks, "Well, this is very bad," and you know, it's we're losing empathy as a culture. But then the other part of me thinks, "Well, is it is it good for them to get this out on the internet rather than take it into life and True. go you know I agree with that and go like uh, hack up everyone in a grocery store with a katana I, I don't know I honestly don't know I I mean I feel like the internet phenomenon is still relatively young in the history of humanity for them to really do uh, thorough thorough studies on what the long term effects are right but we are definitely as a culture people will jump on any rage bandwagon with no information whatsoever it is very true how do you how do you how have you protected yourself emotionally from it and I mean obviously I mean I can't even imagine the kinds of are you you're on, are you on Twitter yes you are on Twitter. Yes. I can't even imagine that you I mean are you just numb to it or do you just know pretty much yeah yeah <laughs> uh, well early on I had uh, when I was 18 one of my close friends uh, who's a musician told me don't read anything about yourself on the internet it's just going to eat away at your brain. And I, I really tried to listen to that advice and take that advice. But one of the great things about social networking, for instance, MySpace is how I built my fan base. Mm-hmm. I used to take it really seriously, and I would come home every day for two hours and either write a blog or answer fan mail. And so there's a part of me that really loves that. but uh, and, and I miss doing that. But when you when you are that involved, you you will inadvertently read negative things about yourself. Sure. Um, it's just people send it to you. You can't avoid it. Um, and so now I'm I'm sort of just used to it. 
uh, Facebook is the worst. And it's kind of a shame because I really do. I, I wish I had the time uh, to do what I used to do in that way. But that that's one of the things I really loved about social networking is being able to ask a question or have involvement from my fans to, to really see their responses and, and what they want to see more of or what they haven't seen that they would like to see. Um, and, and gauging reactions like that is a really useful tool. And uh, it's a bit harder to do when you're inundated with garbage. Sure. So I just kind of go in emotional waves, I guess. Sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm going to be really involved and I'm going to look at everything and respond to people. And then I don't. And, and another friend of mine said, you know, um, <clears throat> he he actually advised me not to respond to fan mail at all. Because he said, like, there's always one bad apple that uh, that ruins the bunch. You know, that one person that... Um, really does believe they're developing a relationship with you um, or that one person seeing you respond to 10 other people but you don't respond to them and then they flip a switch right. so uh, yeah it's a it's the internet is a strange and crazy place but you get used to it after a while and just try and not uh, be distracted well I guess that's the, that's the easiest way to say it. don't be distracted I guess particularly with um, with guys if there are if there are if there are people out there who might be a little uh, loosely tethered to reality that are ex- experiencing you and the work you've done with the, with their own intimate moments that they would maybe claim some ownership over you or something you really do have to be i mean there there's so many things that i feel like that male male celebrities do not like scratch the surface of what female celebrities have to have to deal with because we don't I mean you know no one no one tweets anything sexually threatening and aggressive at me like I'm gonna do this to you and you're gonna <laughs> let you know like, I don't get that uh, I'm gonna do it right when I get home now <laughs> <laughs> oh my god Sasha what, what happened um, but it but so you know I, I guess how do you know did you? Is there some sort of an internal alarm system where you know, like, oh, this person's harmless, and eh, that that person's going to show up somewhere? You really never know. You don't know. You never know. And and you're right about like what women have to put up with opposed to men. I was um, I was watching this documentary last night uh, on Fellini, and it showed his office and people coming into his office like an open call so people from all sorts of backgrounds coming in to talk to Fellini like hey I want to be in your movie or hey read my book and there was a guy at the very end who came in and I was like is that Andre the Giant did Andre the Giant meet Fellini (laughs) so then I'm like googling on my phone did Andre you know and I couldn't find any information but then of course I stumble on the fact that Andre the Giant had a daughter which I never knew and in like the first three comments of this thread that I found online, it said, "Wow, she must be one ugly bitch." Oh I'm my like, God. Jesus Christ! You didn't even, come on. <laughs> hmm, what does they... she do for a living? Maybe let's start with that. <laughs> How could they be so mean to Andrea the Giantess? Yeah, Andrea the Giant. <laughs> <laughs> was it was that on, was it Andre the Giant? Was he, was he did he actually show up at the end or no? Did you ever no, figure it out? No, I, I didn't figure it out, and I'm kind of bothered, but. Maybe one day. It was just another European giant. That showed up. I, I know. I, I'm almost. It had to have been him. But well, if if, we'll if that were if that were the case, that would be on the internet somewhere. Like someone would have caught that. That's that's what I thought. Yeah. The meeting of Andre the Giant and and Fellini would have to be somewhere. But it was it was literally a, a second. He uh, he was in a hallway and sort of bent down from the shadows into the light and said something like, "Hello, Mr. Fellini. I must meet you." And then it cut. I mean, it was really it was so quick. Even freezing on his, pausing on his face, you could barely see because he's half covered in shadows. But anybody want a peanut? That's yes. my, that's one of my favorite lines from Princess Bride. It's just are you a Princess Bride fan. Yes, I've not seen it in years. Oh, you should watch Mowage. Mowage is Peter Cook. It, it is a, you. It, that movie holds up a it thousand does. percent, and not, and not all not all movies from the childhood hold up so well. Um, because our yeah, when we're young, the, we are very forgiving. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but Princess Bride holds up a million percent. I bet. Uh, you should that. You know what, Fellini last night. Let's make it. Let's let's do a let's do an Andre the Giant too. Yes. Potential Andre last night, definite Andre in Princess Bride. What what kind of <laughs> what kind of stuff did you like when you were growing up? 
Growing up. Did you like comedy? Did you like... I liked everything. I just wanted to see and absorb everything. And, um, well, I think the first few films that really made a mark in my memory were The Wizard of Oz, The Labyrinth. Labyrinth. And uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And those movies probably really made me fall in love with movies. Um... And so as a kid growing up, I always just like begged my mom, please uh, go rent a movie. And, and uh, my, one of my uncles would always take my siblings and I to go to the movie theater almost every weekend. Uh, he didn't have kids, so it was like he would spoil us by taking us out all the time. So I really liked everything. And it wasn't until I was, uh, was 12 when I first saw Fahrenheit 451. Oh, wow. And, uh, and that blew my mind away. And I was like, wow, this isn't just fantasy you know this isn't just entertainment and it uh even though i was really too young to understand a lot of it i understood that there was something more that could be done um and then i just kept going from there but i would literally lock myself in the room for hours and nights upon end with my best friend and watch as many movies as i could good or bad um what comedies did you like comedies uh let's see let's see you were born in the late 80s young frankenstein young frankenstein was one of the first Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles. Nice. Um, uh, Ace Ventura, obviously. <laughs> Ace Ventura. I'm a, I'm a '90s child. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, comedy. Uh, comedy was probably really big for me as well. Um, Robin Williams was huge. Mrs. Doubtfire. Me. Yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, Robin Williams was huge in our house. Robin Williams and Eddie Murphy. We're huge in our household. There's a thing, there, there's, a, there's a kind of a trend on Instagram that we discovered called doubt firing, no. where people will like put their face in a pie and then go, hello. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so if you look up doubt firing, it's a thing. It's a, it's a thing that don't some of the people, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget it. <laughs> don't forget it. Were you pretty, um, uh, what, what was, what were you like in high school? Were you, were you, were you popular? Were you kind of nerdy? Did you, were you, uh, I don't know, were you more, bookish or were you more outgoing uh, I was I don't know I you know I jumped around from high school to high school I grew up in Sacramento um, so the high school I, I went to uh, my freshman year my sophomore year it was being converted into a charter like Christian school oh, okay uh, so I went to an art school for two months but it was brand new and it took me three hours to get home oh wow so then I went to I, I like begged my mom to put me in independent studies or homeschooling, and she was totally against it. But I was like, I just want to finish. <laughs> uh, and then I went to another high school in the neighborhood I grew up in. So I, w- I went to four, I think, four different schools altogether. So I never really, until my junior year, kind of got back to my like real best friends who I grew up with and went to elementary and junior high with. Um, but I was. Um, I kind of got along with everybody because I was a bit of a stoner. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't, and I've never been one to that was attracted to groups. Uh, and it was actually, I was, it was really hard on me to see like all the people I went to elementary school with split off and start to develop their own um, ideas and judgments towards other people because I just kind of grew up like free love man you know we're all together <laughs> everyone's Whatever. awesome yeah and so it was hard to see that it was hard to see people join gangs and and you know not like people they were best friends with when they were 11 yeah. that was that was weird to me and i really didn't like that part about high school so i just kind of remained neutral and was friends with everyone fucking hormones man hormones yeah. when the hormones kick in this shit it's gets true. crazy but the stoners were always immune I, I feel like in every school the stoners are always immune probably because they're high and they don't give a shit they're kind of chill and yeah. you know I, I don't know and and i feel like the other groups never really know what to do with the stoners what do we do with you yeah and then, you know and they get their pot from them lock, yeah <laughs> and then, exactly and then lock yourself in a room and watch movies all day no so i i in high school i think um it was weird. I mean, I was really, I, I really just wanted to graduate and get out of high school. I always had really good grades. Um, I, I was really like on a mission to graduate early, and I did. Um, I wanted to graduate two years early, but it was just one year early. <laughs> um, still pretty good. Yeah, still pretty good. Um, so I was involved in like theater and, and theater workshops in school and outside of school. And then uh, when did you start writing? 
started writing, actually started writing when I was 10, 11 years old. And then I started writing screenplays with my mentor who I met in a theater workshop when I was 16. And, uh, we've been struggling since, (laughs) well, you know, we really started trying like when I was 18, when I moved here to find financing for films and we've been struggling since then. Um, and I knew it would be a struggle, but I never really, um, you know, I, I knew that, okay, if I choose to go into porn, I'm not going to have a chance to like do these things traditionally, Sure. but I was more than okay with that. And, I thought, like, well, I'll do it Cassavetti style, get a bunch of friends together and, and find a little bit of money here and there and save up money and go shoot when we can. And, um, well, then I was sort of, like, forced to join SAG, and we all know how that goes. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, now that's not really an option because we have to meet certain requirements and have contracts and agreements with people sure. that are union and people that aren't union. So now I'm part of the system and have to follow the rules. <laughs> so uh, working towards that, but... Uh, with Kickstarter and Indiegogo and all these new crowdfunding platforms, I I really think now is our now is our time to shine and get something made. And with uh, my new book, The Juliet Society, hopefully people will see that and then take the screenplays more seriously. Yeah, um, that that's the idea. When does when does the porn background help, and when is it? Um when is it kind of a liability? Like when when do you find oh that opens these doors and we're like oh but those doors yeah it's really it's a strange thing um, obvi- and it's funny to me because I've well I did a film uh, that wrapped last December called Open Windows with Elijah Wood and directed by Nacho Vigalondo oh great he's Spanish great filmmaker. yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. He directed Time Crimes. Time Crimes, yeah. Which is yeah. one of the fucking greatest. It's really good. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. I just no, got super okay. excited because I, I tweeted at Nacho once and he tweeted back at yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> and he was awesome because Time Crimes is one of those um, movies where I've talked about it before. Uh, Chrono Criminis. If you haven't seen it, you, you should definitely see it because it's a time travel movie with pretty much no special effects. Exactly. It's just, it's sort of like Primer, but it's a little more, it makes a little more sense than Primer. But it's, um, it's, uh, it, it's a mind-bendy. It's so gloriously mind-bendy. I love that it movie. Is. That's really cool. it's something you want to watch more than once, oh, too. I'm so jealous. What, how, was, how was this movie? What was the movie about? It was great. It's a, it's a, I guess you could call it sort of a cyber thriller, but you're familiar with Nacho's work and you know that he has this weird sense of humor. So everything he does is, is it might be a within a genre, but he takes genres and kind of flips them askew mm-hmm. because of who he is and what he brings to his films. And I really like that about him. Um, he brings all his insanity and somehow merges it all together and it comes out into something beautiful. Um, but with that film, for instance, um, Nacho wanted me, the producers wanted me, and there were people that kind of fought against them, and at the end of the day, it came down to, I was, in their minds, the best choice for this role. Uh, There's certain times, because I play a a young actress, uh, there were times where, um, you know, there was nods to my previous career, and those things were fun to kind of, to mirror within the character, uh, because she's sort of like a Lindsay Lohan Megan Fox type. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, sure, that helped. Uh, writing the Juliet Society, writing an erotic novel at a time right now where erotic novels have never seen this much mainstream press in, in within any recent generation. Um, of course, my name has allowed me to do that in a way that you know wouldn't be possible had I not done porn. Um, but then, as uh, say, uh, trying to be a quote-unquote regular traditional actress going into casting calls um that's different and you probably know this and a lot of people listening probably know that most studios work off of a list of 10 names of men and 10 names of women to cast their films (laughs) right and with a film like open windows that i did with nacho i have foreign value to them and they can see that in their marketplace but in America, people still aren't really sure about me. Right. So for them, it, it worked, you know. And, and for America, people still, it's, it's about money. It's always about money at the end of the day. It's just about a business now. And why take a risk on somebody like me who 
in their eyes is unproven as a as a brand or as a product sure uh when they're doing quite fine (laughs) you know you because people can lose the risk of uh or take the risk of losing financiers losing advertisers that are family-based uh corporations things like this it's really all about money at the end of the day and it's a strange thing i mean i've traveled i've I've spent probably two and a half months in california this year and I've been traveling the world, uh, meeting fans everywhere. And it's just so strange that the difference between the cultures, and in, especially in places where you think, like, these are religious countries. Um, but America still has a, a different way of, of being hypocritical about what they... Well, yeah, because we're still... Um, ingest. I think we're still... <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in, in Europe, they're, they're, they're older cultures, and I guess, you know, it's, it's like, man, it's sex. So what's fucking big? What's but even in Russia, I mean, Russia, I, I think, is on the brink of a cultural and social revolution in the next few decades. And they have a lot more problems than we do here in America. Um, and yet somehow I'm allowed to sort of travel to 10 different cities wow. through Siberia in the middle of fucking nowhere and have people come out and say, you changed my life. That's a heavy thing to hear, you know? It's insane. And to ha- it's just, it's really, it's, it's really interesting, but it's also humbling at the same time. So yeah, it, you know, the past is sometimes great and sometimes it's not great. But at the end of the day, I think the most important thing is that people see the, um, that passion and that drive that I had that I I never tried to take away or dilute just because I quit. Right. Well, I think it's important that first of all I think I think people can be retrained in terms of who you are and what you represent. Um I'm not I'm not saying I had the same struggle, but I I worked at, you know, uh, I I did a show on MTV in the '90s and and then got drunk and fat for a bunch of years and 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 so there was definitely um, oh he's that guy and it does take a long time but I think if you're true to what you care about and you're passionate about what you're doing and you know you kind of go well all right you can say that but I'm going to keep doing what I want to do anyway and then eventually everyone else will catch up and they'll exactly. you know and they and they'll forget or they won't care as much or they'll you know I think I think. People really, especially now with the amount of information that they're asked to process every day, they'll really remember the most recent thing yeah. that you did and go, oh, that, 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 that. I mean, exactly. I, don't, I don't really get a lot of shit for the stuff I did before. I should. <laughs> it's insane that I'm still allowed to work. But, um, but I think eventually, you know, the more you write and the more you produce and the more, you know, like every, every role you get is going to lead to... Uh, more roles yeah and every one of those roles will lead to more roles and every book will lead to another book so it's i don't know well i mean and also people always say oh well you did entourage but you played yourself but almost every guest star played themselves on entourage (laughs) (laughs) and it's the best tv show i possibly could have done that right and so that opportunity has allowed me to say no to playing myself again which is a great thing yeah you know so it's it's forward momentum even though it might be slow that that's really cool and, and especially on a show like that it's not a reality show i mean it's right. still, they still turn cameras on they say action there's still their lines exactly it's not like they just go uh sasha just go pick up that cup over there all right this is how <laughs> yeah. i would do this like you're still you're still playing a characterization exactly how was it was it was it fun to work on the that it show? was a lot of fun yeah it was sad it was so short but uh no it was, it was cool um it was really fun to kind of step into a big family because yeah. that's what it felt like getting there. And, you know, at that point, it was the, I think I was on the seventh season. So they were well seasoned by that point. <laughs> they knew what they had it down. Yeah. They had it down by that point. Yeah. Do you, so in terms of the screenplays that you've written and then trying to get stuff going, producing, where, where are you with that stuff? Are you? I have been on a book tour for quite some time now. So I'm here hopefully for, um, a couple months and I want to start and try and see what my options are in terms of crowdfunding and, and possibly get something up on Kickstarter or Indiegogo. I just need to see what the best option is Yeah, and um, just go and make something, quit wasting time. And Do you know what the first thing you're going to try to make is? 
I do. I don't want to talk about it. You don't have it, to say what it case. is. You don't I mean, have to say it's, what it is. It's a it's a it's an indie drama. Okay. <laughs> but, um, no, yeah, I mean the idea behind writing screenplays is also to, you know, create three-dimensional three-dimensional characters to to continue proving to continue to prove myself as an actor. And um, that's what I try to do with everything. I, I co-write uh, these screenplays with my mentor, Anthony Dewan. So that's the idea behind all of these things. And uh, he's been a playwright for a long time uh, and living and working in my hometown in Sacramento. So um, hopefully next year we'll shoot something. It just it depends. I, I'm going to start writing a sequel to The Juliet Society. And oh, wow. Yeah, so things are moving really fast, and it's just trying. It's about trying to find a way to prioritize, and that's and that's a nice feeling. <laughs> well, it must have been. It, must, it, must, it was pretty. Then that was pretty interesting that you got to work with Soderbergh then. Yes. Because you know he of what you're describing, he sort of has that model of like, oh, he'll just go out and make something himself. Oh, and then he'll do a studio movie. And now he's. I don't know if he's is, is he in a retirement right now or is he not in retirement? Because like, for a while he was saying like, oh, I'm not gonna, I don't know what's gonna I happen. I think he's in retirement. Yeah, I think. <laughs> but then eventually, but a guy like that sooner or later he's gonna be like, oh fuck, I just I gotta direct another movie. Yes, hopefully. Um, yeah. But how uh, how did you guys work together? And did, were there things that you did you use him as sort of a case study? Well, I've always admired people like him and Richard Linklater, um, and there's a few other directors that I'm blanking on that are able to float in this world of, like you said, doing a, a small independent film um, and then doing a big studio movie. And and one sort of facilitates the other and allows you to do the quote-unquote passion projects. And uh, with with the book, I mean, that uh, writing The Juliet Society, uh, it's kind of allowing me to take more time and help the smaller projects flourish mm-hmm. uh, and not just rush into something because I've rushed into things in the past that went nowhere. So it's it's nice to finally uh, say like, well, I don't have time at this exact moment, but at least I know I have the luxury of being able to do it in the near future. And then, uh, so yes, I definitely have always hoped and wanted to to kind of follow that path. What's your writing process? How do you how do you organize? I mean, do you start with oh, here's the basic story, or do you write out the chapters and then connect them, or what? What is what is your sort of typical writing day look like? I always start with characters, and writing a, a novel is so different than writing a screenplay. Um, so I read some of Chuck Palahniuk's theories on on writing novels, and that that helped me immensely. Uh, and so I, I did the same with what I do in writing screenplays. I started with the characters, and uh, I started this novel specifically by writing a few sample chapters because that's how I sold the book. Mm-hmm. And um, so I nailed down my central characters first, and then uh, I, I had an idea of where I wanted to take the story, but I also knew that I wanted to leave it open-ended. So that was kind of a struggle, knowing eventually I want to get to this place, but I can't give it all, all away in one story. So I would write, um, I would write individual chapters based on each character, and then strung those together. The book pitch is a real pain in the ass. <laughs> it's like yeah. <laughs> I wrote a book, and my book pitch had to be it was like I had to, I had to redo it three times, and ended up being like thirty four pages long. And it, I mean, it's good. It's a good exercise because. They're the questions you should be asking as a writer, which are, what are you trying to say? And what can people expect? And where yeah. is this going to go? All those things that you're like, ah, fuck, I don't want to deal with that. Uh, I guess I have to. I guess you're supposed yeah, to do no. that when you write a book. And it was good because it, uh, you know, I, was, I wasn't really sure if I could do it and if I could pull it off. So I sent out the sample chapters to a few friends and to my agents and, of course, got feedback from everybody and then refined it before my agent sent it out. And, uh tried to sell sell it <laughs> and it, <laughs> it worked, worked. <laughs> what did you learn so when you before you start writing the sequel to Juliet Society what did you going into the second book what nuggets did you take away after the first one that you're because uh, so when you go through something and you fuck up or you don't fuck up or you learn and the next time you go oh this next time I can't wait to do this to not second guess things because I, I feel like I spent I, I had a really uh, uh, short turnaround time um, 
And so I think I spent too much time trying to refine certain chapters rather than refining the entire story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty happy with what I pulled off in such a short amount of time. Um, but really to not slow down and second guess things was, is really important because the first few months I feel like I wasted a bit of time that could have been spent more, uh, more wisely. Well, yeah, a lot of people usually will sit down. I mean, I do this too, where you start to write something and you go, that's dumb. I'm dumb. This is stupid. Why yeah. am I doing this? Why? And then all of a sudden, the existential questions start getting bigger. Why do? Why am I do anything? Why do? Oh, this is. Oh man. Why do I exist? And it just. It just starts in this. And it's just. It's this, this like widening cone of shame. Um, <laughs> widening cone of shame. Like it but it is. But I think. And it. And it can start with like the dumbest thing. It can start with the dumbest thing. You yeah. know. You. You do. What, you make one tiny mistake, and then shame cone. But. Um, but I definitely think that. Uh, the exercise of going, yes, I am ashamed. I feel the shame, but I'm going to write anyway, or I'm going to do this anyway, or I'm just going to push through it. Yeah. Um, it seems simple, but most people don't do that. They yeah. really just stop. Yeah. So I guess when you for, when you handed in your first draft, was it pretty close to where it ended up, or did you have to go back in and do it all over again? It was. I wish I would have had more time. I mean, when you asked, like, what what did I learn throughout that process, I. I sort of learned what to do and what not to do. Like, I feel like I took too much time dragging the story out uh, rather than getting to the point. Yeah. Um, and that was, um, you know, something that I, I would like to prevent from happening in the future. <laughs> um, and and sorry, I'm, I forgot your question. Oh, I just blanked. Because but, it was uh, long and rambly. Yeah. <laughs> it was a long, rambly no, question. I started that to start, go off on a tangent. <laughs> don't go into the shame cone. Don't go into the shame cone. Don't go into the shame cone. Don't, 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 no, don't. shame cone! I think it had something to do with um, you know, the, what you learned between the first, two, the first two books and then what you're going to do differently. And, uh, and you were saying that you know, that you wouldn't second guess yourself yeah. and, and that you actually want more time. Yeah. You want more time for the next. Oh, are you, are and the, the manuscript, the manuscript. Yes. Uh, let's see. It was strange. Cause I had, I, I turned in a manuscript to my publishers in the UK first. And three weeks later I turned it into the U S. So I spent more time on the U S draft, which I prefer. Mm-hmm. Um, because the UK needed it by a certain date. So I, I spent the next three weeks sort of refining and, and tweaking things for the US draft. And uh, so the UK one is pretty much what I turned in. Mm-hmm. They took out one chapter because they thought it slowed the story down. Um, chapter four, fuck the yeah. queen. <laughs> uh, hello, dear. There's one chapter we're going to have to lose. <laughs> Can you guess which one it is? <laughs> so overall, overall, yeah, it's, it's pretty close to what I turned in. Oh, that's good. So, yeah. are, are you? Has there been an offer for a second book? Do you know? Like, have they said, "Hey, if you want," to, I mean, it sounds like the book's crushing in Europe right now. Yes. So, uh, um, and Brazil, and hopefully Mexico next. So, is it is it available? Is it available in the states? It's available in the states now. It's available now, yeah. Yeah, since May. No, right. August. August. Okay. Yeah, All right. Pretty much September. Um, so how is it? How's the reception been in America so far? I I left to go on tour like the week the book came out, and so it's it's doing all right. Um, I wish it was doing better. Yeah. Um, it's I really think because I didn't do a huge promo tour around the states, going to visit some smaller cities and some major cities, it it kind of hurts. Uh, but online gauging from my social networks people love it they dig it uh it's just a shame i couldn't tour with it like i did in europe can you still do that or is there or is it is it too the publishing world is really weird and i you know i was asked to hold two weeks to possibly travel and, and do promo and then nothing happened with that time and europe called so i said okay i'll go to europe for two months and uh that was really successful um and now that the book has been out basically for two months, uh, it's kind of old news. That's the way the world works. So 
I've kind of been doing what I can to just be active on social networking. Sure. And I did the scavenger hunts in Europe, uh, which people really, really loved. And so I'm going to try and find a way to continue the scavenger hunts in the States, even though I'm not going to all these different places. So maybe like build a street team with fans and say, I'll send you a free book if you go hide this second book for me oh, cool. um, and take a picture, you know? So little things like that, I really think go a long way, especially because people see that I'm doing it myself. Yeah. They don't see some big looming dark company like forcing me to sure. do these things. <laughs> and I think that pays off. Well, if you, uh, did you do a signing in LA? Did you do a book signing? Anywhere? I did. I did a, a signing at Book Soup. And that, oh, nice. Yeah, that went really well. Oh, good, good, yeah. good. Good. They sold all the books. Because so. our, our our live comedy theater is at the back of Meltdown Comics. Oh, cool. So if you wanted to, but it sounds like it sounds like you got all covered there at Book Soup. Yeah. Um, but uh, so you're back for a little while now. Are you going to take any time off? Are you going to rest? Are you going to just be at, at home? Do you live? Is L.A. your primary residence? It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So are you going to just get to kind of relax and take it Not take it easy? Really? <laughs> Not really. Are you workaholic? Uh, I go through, I go through waves. It depends what I'm focused on, but, um, I've also been DJing for the past few years. So when I kind of feel like I need a break, I can still DJ cause it doesn't take up seven days a week. Yeah. So that's nice too. It can go and, and do something quick and it's another way to kind of see the fans and, and do something big and people get excited about. So, um, yeah, but I don't like to slow down. I, I feel like when I'm not working i i feel stuck and i feel like that's when the ideas stop coming to me so i'm i'm probably happiest when i have something to do and i think most people are yeah i think so i mean uh i think that's why we are are so distracted by social media and video games and internet and because you know if if people weren't then we would have empty homes and we just sit there and notice how slow time passes (laughs) but now it's a constant distraction from our own thoughts yeah Nonstop. <laughs> I know it well. I know it well. I'm no good with vacations. I'm no good with... I'm trying to get better about them. I took my first vacation, my first real vacation last summer. Where did you go? To Italy. <gasps> yeah, it was great. Oh, I went to Paris. I went to uh, this town above Paris called Tours, and I'm really butchering the pronunciation of that, but it's where all these old castles are. And I think it's pronounced Tours. 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 And we canoed down the Loire. We canoed <laughs> down the Loire. Yeah, it was fun. And, um, and then I was there for four days and then went to Italy for a week and a half. So. Did you know what to do with yourself when you didn't have a deadline? You were like, what do I do with my hands? Yeah, was, I don't know what to do. It was great. I did nothing. I didn't bring my computer. <gasps> it was the first time I haven't brought my computer somewhere. How do you do that? Yeah, I don't know. I was kind of antsy. And I did have the iPhone, of course. So distractions, for I, sure. I feel like there's a period of like a day or two where you're like, I just need to check. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then after like two days... You're like, oh, right. It's easier. Yeah. Yeah. We're such spoiled shitheads now. It's like, <laughs> sometimes I'll actually sit and I'll go, what did the pioneers do all day? It's like, <laughs> oh, they tried not to die. They filled their days with trying not to die. Yeah. They had to, they had to sow crops. They had to <laughs> fortify their walls. They had to shoot marauders. <laughs> they had to, they had to keep procreating because the mortality rate was high and no one lived past thirty-five. So it, th- th- that's what distracted their day. And now we have Instagram. <laughs> now, and now we have Instagram and doubt firing. And doubt firing. You're not going to forget that. No. Okay, doubt firing. We're almost, yeah, we're almost at the end of our hour. This is almost an hour. Ah, cool. It flew by. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about or anything else you wanted to say or any parting thoughts? Any parting thoughts? It was nice to finally get to do your podcast. Oh, I'm so glad you... I know. I'm so sorry. You you were so patient as you you sort of got uh, beach balled around the dates. Uh. So I I, I apologize. It's been a particularly crazy time because there's two shows in production right now. No, that's good. So it, yeah, <laughs> all right. I'm getting paid. I don't know where I'm fucking getting. But um, uh, I guess in the sort of you know in, in, in the in the broad sort of in the broad in the big picture, um, how do you how do you want people to see you, or how do you want you know when they think of your name or they think of you, what is it that you want them to take away from that? 
Well, really meeting a lot of fans worldwide this year, the thing that I've taken away from these short but sweet conversations is that people really admire me for being an independent and self-aware person. And so I don't think it matters what I do, whether it's writing, uh, photography, acting, music. Um, I, I hope that that spirit thrives through whatever I do because that's seeing that connection uh, with the fans and, and how serious they take it is it's a really cool thing. And like I said, it's really humbling because you never know what people take away from a, a two-minute free clip on the Internet. Right, so, right. Um, yeah, I just hope people continue to see that and recognize that. Don't fake the funk. What's, <laughs> what's the one thing you do whenever you travel and you go to a new city or new, new country? Is there, is there, do you have a, a ritual of like, oh, I always have to do this to see what this experience is like in every city? I, it depends what I'm doing. Um, I, I try and at least get out of the hotel, especially if I have like one hour before I have to be somewhere. Um, and I, and I try and find record shops. Oh, nice. But if like, for instance, on this past tour I did, it was absolutely impossible to do anything. So I try to bond with the people I'm with over food. So nice. I always like say, hey, let's, you know. But actually, most of the time, the, the people I'm with want to go out to dinner anyway. So sure. they say, you know, they ask what I like and then say, I want to try something traditional. So that's kind of a way to bond with the people I'm, I'm there with and working for. Nice. Yeah. For me, it's donuts. Donuts? I find a donut. Uh, we find like, we find, <laughs> a, we find a good donut shop everywhere. That's hilarious. Because donuts... Uh, <laughs> Donuts, and, and if I'm traveling internationally, I know this sounds crazy, uh, the, the potato chips. I will find the potato chips because I think, I think potato chips and clowns are the two things that will tell you so much about a culture. The kinds of, because potato chips are essentially like the rain gutter of, of what people, like what their tastes are in yeah. general. So, you know, we like salt and vinegar. If you go up to Canada, they have ketchup and pickled flavored chips. No, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. The best ever. Okay, um, I'll, I'll try and it. Then, uh, and, then, uh, and then clowns will tell you a lot about, like, that's, like, what is the, what is the lowest common denominator comedy like in this culture? Yeah. And a clown will, will tell you that. Interesting. Right? So you go to France, you get these sort of weird, esoteric, creepy clowns. Yeah. Uh, and here in America, it's, it's a little goofier. And uh-huh. Italy has its own. Yeah, exactly. So I look for like donuts, donuts, chips, and clowns. Donuts, chips, and clowns. I sound like a serial killer. I guess you kind of do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm guess just coffee because I, I, I love coffee and I find it really difficult to find a good espresso or cappuccino somewhere. Go to Portland. Port, you're right. Actually. They will, and Portland. no matter where you go, they will tell you it's the wrong place. Portland has great tourist. coffee. Portland and um. Uh, Milwaukee. Yeah, Milwaukee. Milwaukee yeah. is a great town. Yeah, Milwaukee it's... is a Milwaukee, Minneapolis. First of all, are amazing comedy towns, and they have a rich theater culture because it's too fucking cold there to do anything else. In nine, <laughs> you yeah. go there in the summer, and you're like, this is a lo- this is why wouldn't people live here more often? They've converted all these old factories into loft apartments in and the it's... lake. Yeah, exactly. And then you realize that nine months of the year that it's your nose freezing. is spitting icicles out, uh, and you're in an ice forest. Yeah. Um, okay, coffee. Yeah, that, that's a good one too. I can't. I can't really drink caffeinated coffee. I have to drink decaf. But I do. Uh, I do. I do search out the coffee. Uh, that's too bad for you. Do you need the coffee? I need it. Yeah. I actually had a moment um, last year, specifically like Christmas in the New Year. Uh, I was in Europe a lot, and I wasn't used to the damp and the cold and the rain. So I was like drinking coffee to stay alive. And I didn't have a coffee for one day, and I got really depressed. I said, okay, I think I have a problem. I need to <laughs> this is bad. Yep. So I started to wean myself off with tea, mm-hmm. and it worked. Oh, and nice. I, for three months, I had like eight coffees. And then you got back to the now States. Now I'm back on it, yet. but I, I, I could do it again. No, I... I, I I can do it again. I swear. It sounds like, sound like you got a problem. Well, this, no problem. Is, a, this a problem. is a coffee intervention. We're all very it concerned is. about you. <laughs> but uh, no, it's it's it is. I, I need my coffee. Well, uh, you have been delightful. 
And I really hope that the book catches on in the States more to, oh, to your you. satisfaction. Uh, the book is A Juliet Society, and it's available, uh, I assume, wherever ebooks and uh, brick and mortar type bookstores yeah, are. Target, anymore. Barnes and Noble. The Target, Target, and Barnes and Noble. Yeah, all that good the stuff. The Target. Isn't that funny? I mean, I remember when I was growing up, Target was basically just like a glorified grocery store. Yeah. And now they've just like, they're, they're fucking crazy. And Minneapolis is the home of Target. Really? So you get these like super targets there. There's like a super target. Oh, I went to, uh, even the one in West Hollywood now has. Oh, the gateway? But, the West Hollywood yeah, gateway? Ga- yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I just heard something completely <laughs> the West, different. The West Hollywood gateway? It's like, wait, we have a problem here. No, no. <laughs> Chris was really fine. And then he got strangely. Homophobic. Over the end. Oh, you're going over there to the, uh, the, 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 the gateway. No, it's called the West Hollywood Gateway. I never knew that, actually, <laughs> yes, but yes, is. that one. <laughs> yeah, now they even have a market. It tripped me out. Because <laughs> they're gay. No, again, <laughs> why? Why did you have to why? go that way? All right, it? I'm leaving. Fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> That's with the ADR, the stomp, 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 stomp. Cool. Well, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. The end. <sighs> Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Why? Why? If you have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 